This morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves the pains of death. Though the grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's start here this morning that I think much of life comes down to perspective, comes down to rightly or wrongly viewing something. Uh, my poor son, Ethan, uh, this week on Monday, uh, he had uh, five teeth removed. Uh, welcome to summer, son, uh, as he had his first week off of school. And uh, as I took him there, uh, and I took him back, and uh, the surgeon had him in a chair there, the surgeon approached him, and before he gave him the laughing gas, he said to him, you're going to fall into twilight sleep, and let me tell you how to approach this. He said, if you think happy thoughts when you fall into twilight sleep, you will wake up pleasant. If you think bad thoughts as you fall into twilight sleep, you will wake up crying like a baby. Just a little perspective. How you view a thing matters. Paul gives perspective in our passage this morning, and I want to look at it in three ways. The very first section, what he does, is he is encouraging us, let us have a right perspective of relationships in Christ. 
Let us have a right perspective of relationships in Christ. Here we have Paul at the very outset of our passage. He is taking the most difficult of all relationships that could possibly be had in this present world where one person owns another person. And he is addressing Christian bondservants or Christian slaves at the very beginning of our passage. Now, we don't have time to, this morning to do a deep dive into everything that the Bible has to say about slavery. But let us say simply that the Bible is very clear that slavery is not something that is to be condoned. It is actually an evil. And I think that is very clear in the Scriptures. Paul is no stranger to it as he's writing this. It was everywhere during his time. There is, uh, at this time, the Roman Empire, depending on what historian that you listen to, will say that anywhere from a fifth to a third of the Roman Empire were slaves at this time. Anywhere from three to six million people were slaves at the time of the Apostle Paul. But it was not race-based slavery as you and I think of it. We have the American experience in our mind and the transatlantic slave trade and the, the cattle slavery, the chattel slavery of the American South in mind. That's not what was occurring uh, in the Roman Empire at this time. Most slaves in the Roman Empire were those that had been taken as prisoners of war or they were men and women that had sold themselves uh, for because they were in debt into slavery so that they could pay back their debts. And Roman law allowed for most slaves to be freed after seven years of service. And almost every slave was freed by the time that they were 30 years of old. They were often as slaves. They were semi-skilled laborers. They were artisans. They were physicians. They were artists. Uh, they were lawyers. And what they were allowed to do under Roman law is that they were allowed to save some of the money that they accrued through the labor that they did. Usually, they would be able to save a third of all that they were paid, and two-thirds would go to their master, and they would use that third to eventually purchase their freedom. It was heinous, but it was not quite the same institution that you and I have in mind when we think about the transatlantic slave trade which was an abomination beyond abomination. But I think, regardless, we can all agree that slavery is not a good thing. None of us would rather be a slave than be free. And that's the first sign. It's horrific. It's evil, one person owning another. And yet, it's interesting, isn't it, that as we hit these verses, Paul doesn't attack slavery head on, but rather he encourages a slave to honor his or her masters. Why? Well, we have to take a little bit of a step back so that we can have some perspective as we think about this. It's not that Paul somehow doesn't see human slavery as evil. Again, let's be very clear, slavery is evil. And yet what Paul has in mind is he has a greater view in mind. He has the honor of God and the teaching of God in mind. 
And so he's saying to the slaves, show honor to your master. Why? Well, he tells us, so the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Well, that's easy for you to say, Paul. You're not a slave. Why not say slavery is evil? Destroy it everywhere that you find it. Run away from your masters. Again, let's get a little bit of perspective, taking a step back. Paul, like Jesus, does as well in his preaching, and as Paul will do throughout his letters, he is sowing the seed that provides the foundation for seeing all people set free in the world and the world to come. He's taking a bigger view. He cares about slavery. As Christians, we care about all suffering. All suffering. But especially eternal suffering. And by caring about eternal suffering, we actually address present suffering. How? I'll take some perspective. Paul here is laying the groundwork for the abolition of slavery. If Christianity had become a social movement in these early centuries of the church, in these first couple of centuries, and simply aimed at destroying slavery, the greater message of the gospel would have been lost. But you see, when the gospel is preached, the groundwork is laid for every single social ill and every single social injustice to be undone and to be rectified. And Paul's letter, when he writes the letter to the church there in Colossae, and in Colossians, he will address slaves. And as he writes that letter to the church in Colossae, there will be at least one slave that's standing in the midst of that church, Onesimus. We know that from the book of Philemon. Most likely, a lot of them were slaves as he is writing that. And most likely here in Ephesus, a lot of the church is slaves. In the early church, the church was often accused of just being a place for the poor and women and slaves. Because so many slaves came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in those early centuries of the church. And so when he's writing these letters, this is not lost on Paul. And as he's thinking about this, they, like every Christian, has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They've been made a new creation. And he knows, and as he teaches, every slave is to know that as they are made a new creation, there is now in the church neither slave nor free. They're on the same level ground with their masters at the foot of the cross. They even are to call them brother. Can you imagine how socially offensive this was in the first century world? let alone the 19th century American context that a slave would call his master brother. That's what the Christian faith says. So one can see how a Christian slave might think, well, I'm united to Christ and this frees me from my service to my master. I have one master, that is Christ. And Paul doesn't want Christian slaves mistaking their 
freedom in Christ as an excuse to create a breach between themselves and their earthly authorities and thereby disparage the teaching and the very name of Christ. But the seeds were sown. Seeds are sown for upending the institution of slavery. And how are they sown? They're sown by the preaching of the Gospel. And they're sown by living in light of that Gospel. It would take time. We could rightly say it took too long of a time for Christians and for people to eventually see that the truth of God and the ethics of Christianity were incompatible with slavery. You still wish that Paul had taken more of a frontal assault upon slavery. Maybe. Understand that? One theologian said it this way, he said, in such circumstances, a pragmatic quietism was the most effective means of gaining room enough to develop the quality of personal relationships which would establish and build microcosms of transformed communities. And you know what those microcosms of transformed communities are? Churches. Where it's begun to be reflected here. And no matter what socioeconomic class you come from, or what race you come from, or what your background is, that as you come together here, we're on level ground. And here there is mutual dignity and mutual worth and mutual respect and mutual love for one another. And that has a transforming effect. And it undoes evil institutions. As the kingdom goes forward, social injustices and equalities will be rectified by the right relationships here. It's no mistake. It's not a mistake in history. It was in the Western world that slavery first ends. And it's not a mistake in history that it's in the Western world as it is led by people such as William Wilberforce and the Wesleys and John Newton and Harriet Beecher Stowe, Christians. That slavery was abolished in the Western world. It's the fruit of the seeds that Paul had planted. Make no mistake, it was Christianity that destroyed slavery. Christianity. And it was destroyed by the church continuing to proclaim the gospel and then live the ethics of that gospel in relationship with one another. That's what I know. I know there are a lot of, there's a lot of heartburn today. Rightfully so. We look at different social ills in our culture. And, uh, and it's troubling. Are you concerned about different social issues right now? Are you concerned about the future of our country? 
I want to be pointed. Let me ask it this way. How many people have you shared the faith with this week? And I say that to myself. Maybe if we spent less time on Fox News and MSNBC and CNN, use some of those minutes to share the faith. Maybe some of these social ills would be addressed. If we want lasting change, it occurs through changed lives. Did our living this week demonstrate that we're different, that we're a new creation? That witness actually works lasting reformation, freedom both now and forevermore. Now we can tackle this or that issue. I hope some of you are very much, I hope all of us are salt and light in our community. And I hope there are many of you that go out and you start different non-profit organizations and you get involved politically and you lead protests and you lead marches and you're involved in this endeavor and that endeavor. Christians need to do that. But the ultimate answer and the real answer is not nonprofits. It's not you being a politician. It's not voting for the right person. It's Christ. And it's the gospel being proclaimed and people being transformed by that gospel and then us living in light of having been transformed by that gospel. That works real, lasting change. Are you actually concerned about the ills in our society, the injustices in our society? If you are, and I say this to myself as I say it to you, then you're an evangelist. And you're not just an evangelist, but you're seeking to live out your life in light of Christ in all of your relationships with people. Even a slave to a master, it's reflected in that. I'm going to show honor to him or to her so that when they see me, they see something different. And they ask, what is it that makes you so different? you share that gospel. Again, just want to be frank. You and I have no, no grounds on which to complain about the trajectory of our society if we're not evangelists. No ground to stand on. takes a little perspective. All our relationships, even the most difficult, are to be seen in light of Christ. Second, let us have a right perspective of doctrine in Christ. Let us have a right perspective of doctrine in Christ. It seems very unconnected as Paul says, teach and urge these things. What things? Well, the things Paul has been teaching he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, he says, different from what? From the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the issue. 
There were obviously loud and incredible gifted leaders and teachers, maybe in the congregation among the lay people, maybe some that were serving in the office of elder. We don't know that were proclaiming things that were a false doctrine. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, take a step back and recognize it. Something different from the words of Christ are, be spo- are being spoken here. Just as the Gospel in the name of the Lord can be threatened by us not living rightly in relationship with one another, so here is a threat on the teaching of Christ in the name of God by teaching false things. Let's be on guard. What are those words of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul wants Timothy to stick close to? Only the words that Christ spoke? No, I think it's more than that. It's surely the words that Christ spoke, but I think Paul is also here referencing himself. The words that he has written. He understands his own words as being the words of Christ. Remember when Christ ascended, and, or when he sent out the 70 before he ascended, he said to them when they uh, were sent out, he said, he who listens to you listens to me. And when he ascended, he gave the gift of apostolic ministry to Paul and to Peter and to John and to these early apostles so that what they wrote was the very words of Christ. So that when we read Paul, we hear Christ. Stick close to this doctrine, Timothy. The teaching, he says, verse 3, accords with godliness. How, how do you recognize it? How do you know whether what you're hearing is true or not? Well, right doctrine produces right living, godliness. There were false teachers present who were producing something else. Well, how, how do you recognize that? Take a step back, Timothy. Look, these false teachers are recognizable. Verse 3, he points out, There's a soundness in good teachers, and now he says there's a sickness in these false teachers. You can notice them by their, quote, unhealthy craving for controversy, he says in verse 4. A sickness, he says, for controversy and for quarrels about words. He says in verse 4 that they understand nothing. It's not that they don't have anything to say. Those who love controversy, those who love quarrels are often some of the loudest people that you'll ever meet. They have an opinion on everything and they let you know. They seem to overflow with knowledge. And yet Paul says in verse 4, some translations put it, they're conceited idiots. They're know-nothings. Why? Because they lack IQ? No usually quite smart, yet they know nothing. How do you know it, Timothy? Well, step back. Look at it. Look at the fruit. With sound teaching, harmony is the fruit. Slaves honoring their masters. False teaching causes division in the body. Verse 4, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people. False doctrine leads to disrupted fellowship. Sowing distrust and suspicion is absolutely ungodly. Listen, it works in the world to stir the pot a little bit. You can get ahead. 
but it's an abomination in the church. Beware of persons who are always questioning, always quarreling about definitions, words. They seem to be the person with the right way and the right view, and they desire to show everyone else their way and want everyone else to know their view. They routinely sow seeds of suspicion in the mind about others. Well, sin, they're wolves. It's a wolf seeking to devour the sheep. Some cause, as he says, constant friction. Maybe they don't cause church splits everywhere they go. Maybe they don't cause people to leave a church. But there is a wake behind them of constant friction, as Paul says. They rile people up. They sow dissension. And Paul says they are evidencing, quote, depravity of mind. And they're demonstrating that they are, quote, deprived of truth. The truth of Christ sows the peace of Christ. Take a step back and see it. I don't care how entertaining they are. I don't care how bright they are. I don't care how many followers they have on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever is the new thing of the day. If they sow disunity, they are to be run from, Paul was saying. Wrong living will destroy, and wrong teaching will destroy. Have a right perspective on your relationships. Have a right perspective on doctrine. Cling close to the people of God and cling close to the teaching of Scripture. Finally, let us have the right perspective of our present circumstances for Christ. Let's have a right perspective of our present circumstances for Christ. Why? Because discontentment also destroys. These false teachers were promoting the idea that godliness would produce financial blessing. The first wealth and health teachers of the gospel right here. In the church in Ephesus. Paul is saying no. Godliness with contentment is the end. Godliness is not a means to an end. It is the end. It pays dividends forever and ever. It has blessings forever and ever. It itself is an end to be sought. Godliness with contentment. The gift that you and I are given in Christ. What an albatross discontentment is when you don't have it. I've sat over the years with a lot of different people, obviously uh, pastoring and that have just made a train wreck of their lives and different sins. And I'll tell you, I haven't sat down with a person yet that's had an affair and they weren't first discontent. 
I haven't sat down with a person yet who has become a drunkard or a liar or a thief or an idolater that doesn't allude to having been discontent. Discontentment is an entryway for your adversary. It is a place that he just establishes a little foothold and then he makes it a stronghold. And this entire society and culture is built, at least in the last hundred years, to inflame within you a feeling of discontentment. But you need more. You don't have enough. You need the happy life. This is how you get it. You need this. They have it. Why don't I have it? Always upward. Jesus said, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But that takes perspective. Take a step back. So Paul reminds us in verse 7, you can't take anything out of the world and you are leaving this world, so be content. But I don't have. Again, let's take a step back. A little perspective. Paul says, yeah, you came into the world, you didn't have anything. When you leave the world, you won't have anything. As Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. Takes a little perspective. I heard a story about a pastor that was doing a funeral for a rich old woman in the congregation who had died, and uh, the congregants were very curious about where she had left her stuff to, and so one of them approached the minister and they asked him they said well how much has she left behind and the minister said everything all of it if we have food and clothing with these we are to be content Paul says that is the necessities are enough You didn't bring anything in. You can't take anything out. Now, can we have more than the necessities? Of course. Notice that Paul did not say money is evil or that it is the root of all kinds of evil. He says the love of money is, and he says it is a root of all kinds of evil. Some of the wealthiest Christians I have known have been some of the most godly Christians because they are not loving money. And they are giving away and giving away and they are seeking to use their resources for the benefit of the kingdom. Listen, the poor can have as much a love for money as the rich can have. Both have to be on guard against the love of money. As Paul tells us here, it comes with a warning sign that's written in large letters above it. There are many that have gone this way. They've made a wreck of their lives even lost their faith by heading this way. And how silly that is. Gain a little perspective. It all disappears when you gain a little perspective. I was sitting with two of our 
older elders, more seasoned elders this morning praying, and we got to the end of praying, and I was telling them it was two years, it came up on my Facebook feed, two years ago yesterday was uh, the day that we came back in the midst of COVID, finally to in-person services. We started with five morning services two years ago yesterday, so that we could get everybody here. And we were saying just, ah, these two years, they've gone by in a flash. And one of these more seasoned elders said, he said, you know, I keep thinking about Ecclesiastes and just realize life is a vapor. The other one said, doesn't it feel like just yesterday that we were at Michigan State University as students in their 70s now? This is a flash. How absolutely silly it is to give up eternal treasures for trinkets that are temporal. So silly. And yet we will allow discontentment to grab a hold of us and we will fall in love with money. And there are those that Paul says have abandoned the faith because of it. Height of stupidity. Have the right perspective of your present circumstances. Paul was saying, Colossians, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things in Him who strengthens me. Here's the secret of being content, Paul is saying. This is not a verse about getting a touchdown or hitting a home run. This is a verse about contentment. And Paul has the secret. Want can consume, wealth can consume, or Christ can consume. It's Christ. read this weekend about a man visiting someone in the hospital. They were both immigrants uh, from a country in Africa here in the U.S. And uh, one of the man that visited the man in the hospital, he was talking to him and the man in the hospital bed stopped him. And he said, I hear my country in your voice. I hear my country in your voice. The man that had been talking wrote, he said, that man placed his entire country upon my being. Saw it reflected in my being. Christ is to so have a grip on you and I, so have a grip upon us, that when people hear us, they hear our country. That when people see us, they see our country. This world needs you and I to live heaven before them. We know as Christians that we have all in Christ. I was thinking upon this last night. Freedom. 
I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, said Christ. Security? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Love? He said, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Friendship? Jesus said, I have called you friends. Family? For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Companionship? He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Justice? You want justice? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, the psalmist says. Peace? He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Are you hungry? He's the bread of life. Are you thirsty? He's the living water. Are you naked? He covers you with His righteousness. Rest, He says, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Riches, my goodness, were co-heirs with Him. All that is His for all of eternity is yours, Christian, for all of eternity. What is lacking? And we could go on for the rest of today and detail things. What is lacking? Nothing. Nothing. That is why Paul says he is our yes and our amen. Everything is in him. You have everything. And that changes everything. Changes your relationships with one another and everybody in the world. It changes the way that you live before the world. It changes how much you value this word and stick close to this doctrine. And it changes where you find your pleasures forevermore and where you are content. In him? I want to see your lives and my life transformed by the beauty of Christ. I desperately want to see our world change. And I know that it will only happen by Christ working through you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You this morning. You are a God of all truth. You are a God who is active in this world. We give You praise, Lord Jesus Christ, that in You is hidden all things, that all things are ours in You. We pray that we would live in light of it for Your glory and for Your praise. In Christ's name, amen.